Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to welcome back to the programme Dr Paul Craig Roberts, who is the chairman of the Institute for Political Economy, with a career that has spanned academia, journalism, business and public service. He's held numerous senior academic positions in universities. He was an associate editor and columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and he was appointed by President Reagan as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy during Reagan's first term in office, and after that he served as a consultant both to the U.S. Department of Defense and the U.S. Department of Commerce. Dr. Roberts, thank you for joining us again on The Mind Renewed. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Julian. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, and I want to take the opportunity today to chat with you about the Trump administration and to see if you can help us make some sense of what is going on, because uh, several listeners have asked me to invite you onto the program to have that particular discussion. But I thought it would be a good idea to wait until now, until Trump had been in office for at least a few months so we can get beyond all the the rhetoric of the campaigning and see what the administration is shaping up like in practice and now following the events in Syria this seemed like a good time to have that conversation so I'll be asking you about the Trump administration in general but particularly concentrating on foreign policy because I think that's perhaps the most important aspect but I'll start with a general question a kind of a if you'll forgive me a kind of tabloid question but um, I think you'll see why I'm asking it this way on the campaign trail Donald Trump said that he was going to drain the swamp so is Trump draining the swamp or is the swamp draining Trump (laughs) well I think that uh, the Trump presidency is uh, already over I'm not even sure he qualifies as a figurehead As you know, Julian, I was uh, one of the ones who argued that we had to give him a chance because he had made two promises that were extremely uh, different and important. One was he was going to normalize relations with Russia and get us out of Syria and the entire Mideast, uh, even rethink NATO. And on the domestic front, uh, he was going to uh, stop the... um, offshoring of American jobs and uh, stop the uh, influx of uh, work visas for foreigners who can be hired at below market wages. So none of this has happened. And what we see is uh, yesterday, I think it was, uh, the vice president of the United States, uh, this Pence fellow, is making foreign policy announcements that have always been the prerogative of the president. It was Pence who issued threats of war to North Korea. Perhaps my memory fails me, but I don't ever remember vice presidents playing that role of announcing military threats to foreign countries. We also see this often done by the Secretary of Defense, the National Security Advisor. So Trump, as the president, seems not to be part of foreign policy, certainly not of statements. Uh So he seems to be sort of displaced from this role. Do you think we're seeing something of a repetition of the Cheney-Bush relationship, where a lot of people said, well, Cheney was really in control? Well, it's similar to that. Cheney was, of course, in control. He had long been in Washington and held many positions, uh, 
Secretary of Defense. I think he was the Chief of Staff of the White House. Uh, he was well-connected, knew everybody, and of course, you know, Bush was no match for that. But what we see now, I think, it's not Trump being displaced by his vice president. He's being displaced by the Washington establishment, by the deep state, by everybody. The CIA has essentially taken over foreign policy and has uh, made it a policy of war. And I think another thing that's uh, very noticeable, though it doesn't get any attention, is that all previous American acts of aggression, whether it's Serbia or Libya or Afghanistan or Iraq or Yemen or Somalia, they all had some kind of cover, either some UN resolution or NATO. They had both for Libya or a coalition of the willing, you know, they dragged the British in, Germans, the French, whoever, uh, Australians, they get a group so that it doesn't look like an illegitimate exercise of military power by the United States. But what Trump did in ordering the air attack on Syria, this was the first time that the United States went it alone. And under international law, under the Nuremberg Standard, established by the United States, that constituted a war crime. It is clear as day. It is not even debatable. It's unambiguous. Trump committed a war crime, and nothing whatsoever has been said about it. Instead, all the little lackeys in Whitehall and Germany and France and Canada and Australia all send in their support of a war crime. Indeed, Michael Fallon, UK Defence Secretary, has said it was the right thing to do. He said it was the right call. Um, We fully support what the Americans have done. It's limited. It's wholly appropriate. Yeah. So when you see war crimes receiving the universal approval of Western civilization, this is a new law. There's no cloak. There's not even a pretense that this is some kind of uh, joint action justified by the jointness of it. Sure. Now, that is really very interesting that you say also that Trump is controlled now by the deep state. And what you've just said there fits very much, at least I think, I want to see what your comment will be on it, um, the hypothesis of Nafis Ahmed, who wrote that he thinks Trump represents the sort of nationalistic wing, the US nationalistic wing of the deep state, which is in tension with, as it were, the deep system in an international sense. So do you agree that that is what we're seeing? Uh, It can look like that, but I think it's different. I would put it different. I don't think he represents it. I think he's been displaced by it. Mm -hmm. Trump was never involved in nationalist movements or anything like that. He was a real estate developer, an entertainer, uh, built gambling houses, and obviously had to deal with criminal elements that control so much of that, and Zionist elements that control so much of entertainment. But he certainly isn't a political creature. He's never been involved in some kind of national uh, politics. So I think it's not that he represents it, but that he has been displaced by it and feels uh, essentially um, helpless. 
Right. Um, you know, they got rid of his national security advisor very quickly, uh, General Flynn, who was committed to improving relations with Russia. So clearly this was not acceptable to the CIA or the establishment, whatever you want to call them, the deep state. And they cleared him out and they stuck in a Russophobic guy. So why do you think that Donald Trump fell for that and actually got rid of Flynn, although technically it's a resignation? I don't, I don't know. Um, the easiest explanation is that it went on for several weeks and somebody told Trump, whether it was Bannon or his daughter or his son-in-law or somebody said, look, uh, we've got to put a stop to this uh, because we can't go forward. We can't go on with the agenda. We're just bogged down in this. So the only thing to do is cut him loose uh, so that we can get over this. That is a likely explanation. And whoever gave that advice was quite stupid because it put blood in the water. And once that happened, then they started in on Trump himself, talking about uh, impeaching him for his uh, traitorous behavior with Putin. And so I think he just reached the point where he said, I can't fight this. I'm intimidated. And he had even members of the Republican Party saying the same thing, like McCain and uh, this Lindsey Graham. So that could be the explanation. I just don't know. There's no way of knowing. Sure, sure. So essentially, the picture that I'm getting here is of a Trump who is, as was said in the media, naive, that he went in thinking that he was the, the big businessman, you know, with the cigar and the big chair and be able to control everything like a business. But that turns out not to be the case. He's controlled himself by forces that are too big for him. Yes, I think, you see, what, is, what happens in the United States, in fact, it happens all over the Western world, is the CIA can control every explanation because mm. owns the media everywhere. Yeah. Uh, we've had so many people tell us this. We've mentioned it before. There's the German editor. What was his name? Udo Ufkati. He wrote the book, Bought Journalism, and he said that uh, there wasn't a significant journalist in Europe that wasn't on the CIA's payroll. We've had the same kinds of books written here. It goes back to the 1950s. Now it's just uh, so total. There's no longer any uh, investigation in the United States by media of any government statement. The government can say anything can be completely absurd, and the media reports it as fact. They don't even ask a question about it. So there's no constraint on the stories or the explanations that can be given. So we have all these highly implausible explanations given every day that are obviously false to anybody who's aware, knowledgeable, paying attention. And the media never asks a question. They just repeat it. So you know, lies are now true. And they have created a world in which Western populations live within these lies and believe that they're true. So when you have that kind of control over people, you can do pretty much whatever you want. And it looks like uh, we are, we, I mean, Washington, the United States is going to lead the Western world into more conflicts. We see these highly aggressive statements made about North Korea. North Korea is not doing anything to anybody. They've not attacked anybody. They don't have any invasion plans. We now have um, threats both from the Secretary of State Tillerson 
against Iran, threats from Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, against Iran. Mattis recently met with our Saudi Arabian uh, puppets and the other puppets we have, and he said, quote, everywhere you look, if there is trouble in the Middle East, you find Iran. We have to overcome Iran's effort to destabilize yet another country and create another militia in their image of Lebanese Hezbollah. Well, who's destabilizing the countries over there? It's not Iran. They haven't invaded anyone. It's the United States. They destroyed Libya, Iraq, Lebanon, parts of Pakistan, Afghanistan. They're trying to destroy Syria. So they speak in words that are so obviously false. And nobody says, what are you talking about? You're the one who's destabilizing everything. The only person who says that is Putin. And anybody who then repeats what Putin has said or generally goes against the narrative that you've just been describing, of course, is labeled with this term fake news these days. Right. So we have threats issuing from everywhere in the U.S. government, but they're not coming from the president coming from the vice president, the secretary of state, secretary of defense, national security advisor, and that stupid woman that uh, Trump's appointed uh, as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. I mean, this woman, is she's completely crazy. And you look at all of these threats, threats, threats. What for? What is anybody doing? The only people causing trouble in the world is Israel and the United States. No one else is attacking countries and creating propaganda about them. And, but it's incessant and it's unrelenting. And for reasons that are really perplexing, uh, the Europeans just go along and participate. Oh, Washington said it. It has to be true. Yes, we agree. Going back to what you were saying about North Korea, um, I was listening to Noam Chomsky fairly recently. He was on Democracy Now! And he was saying that North Korea's position is entirely defensive. And he was saying that there have been a series of agreements over the last few decades, sort of tit for tat between the US and China and North Korea, that there'll be a relaxation on sanctions if they don't go ahead with their nuclear program too much. And then, of course, it was broken. And then, you know, a whole sort of series of these agreements and breaking of agreements, a kind of stable situation of instability, which he was implying was quite serviceable. Why shouldn't that continue? What has changed for that to be broken? I think it's a way of trying to put pressure on China. You see, the two countries that can constrain American unilateralism are Russia and China, and they've both shown that capability. And so Washington doesn't want to be constrained. So this is a way of kind of, you know, Russia and China don't want nuclear weapons going off on their border, which is what a conflict with North Korea would mean you would have nuclear weapons going off in the vicinity of China and Russia, and they don't want that. And so for Washington to kind of pick a fight with North Korea is a way of telling China, well, if you want us to stop, you're going to have to do something we want you to do, which is to get out of our way here or there, or stop supporting Moscow. You see what I'm saying? It's a way of getting the leverage. China can't accept an American military attack on North Korea and would not want to go to war about it, but they can't accept that. And so this is a lever that 
Weissen is using on China. That's the explanation for North Korea. Now, the explanation for Syria and Iran is Israel, because Israel has been trying to annex southern Lebanon for decades. They twice sent the Israeli army in to annex southern Lebanon. See, they want the water resources there. There's that river there. And they were defeated by Hezbollah. Hezbollah, a militia, twice sent the vaunted Israeli defense force running for their lives back to Israel. And so Israel says, well, where does Hezbollah get its weapons, its support, its money? It comes from Iran and Syria. So we got to get rid of Iran and Syria. And this is why I think we have the renewed American involvement in the war against Syria, this escalation of actually attacking Syria directly rather than through its uh, ISIS mercenaries. And this is now the reason for this rhetoric uh, from the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State about Iran. Uh, we have to get them. Uh, they're causing trouble everywhere. You see Iran's hand. This is just a blatant lie. And uh, he's over there meeting with the Saudi uh, royal dictatorship. So, you know, the neoconservatives are primarily Zionists. And they essentially control the American foreign policy discussion and the think tanks and the university positions. Uh, they have been entrenched in the government since Bill Clinton. In fact, they got to start with Reagan. Indeed. And we actually had quite a, a long discussion and very helpful discussion about this. But I think... You know, to some extent, a lot of people will think, well, we, we're kind of used to the neocons. We know what they're about. So it seems so peculiar that things are kicking off in this very unpredictable way at the moment. And I wonder if you think there's anything to, again, I'll turn back to Nafis Ahmed, who's a, a very good uh, researcher and writer. And he suggests that maybe the Trump administration is listening to uh, Henry Kissinger, who has, has this advisory role. And what he's suggesting is that Kissinger is advocating a madman theory, which is the idea that you create chaos. You have a policy of creating chaos, doing things in an unpredictable way so that your enemies don't actually know what's going on. Do you think there's anything to that? No, I think that's completely false. Kissinger is not a neoconservative. He's nowhere near as dangerous as a neoconservative. And Kissinger has advocated that we stabilize the situation with Russia and with the Middle East because he says stability is what's important. Kissinger was a cold warrior, and his view was that you had to avoid fatal conflict. Also, you had to maintain uh, something of an edge over the Soviets, but not something threatening that could provoke uh, a conflict. So his counter-diplomacy is nothing comparable to the neocons who have a ideology of U.S. world supremacy. And this makes it a far more dangerous ideology. In fact, it's the most dangerous ideology that has ever existed on Earth. And people don't understand this. In fact, most people don't know what a neocon is. They've never heard of the neoconservatives. 
I notice even in discussions with uh, Russian news programs, uh, they're quite confused about it. Oh, that is interesting. It's very interesting. And I would say that uh, 95% of the American population has no idea what a neoconservative is. Now, the people Trump has in office are not known as neoconservatives, but they have the same kind of mentality and what the interpretation of America first, you know, Trump's slogan, America first, that is interpreted as a neoconservative, whereas what Trump means was we're going to stop sacrificing our economic interests to others, such as exporting our factories to China. But that's not the way it's been seized on. And so when you get these very nationalistic generals like McMaster and Mattis, they have not the neoconservative ideology, but they have the mindset that the United States is good and decent and wonderful and other countries aren't. So do you think that, again, Trump was naive to appoint people like that, that he didn't see what the danger was that those would be taken up by the neocon powers behind the scenes? Yes, I warned from the beginning that Trump's great problem was that he was unfamiliar with the policy debates, unfamiliar with people, and would not know whom to appoint. But that if he could appoint the right people, he could make an important difference. But I think it proved to be the fact. He just didn't know what all the discussion was and what it was about, and he didn't know who to appoint, and he didn't realize how the other side can control the explanations. He, he tries to combat that or tried with his Twitter account. You know, he's always sending these <laughs> Twitter things showing is how he tries to uh, combat the media, the prostitutes that speak for the establishment. But it's not been successful. Which did turn out to be quite embarrassing in retrospect, considering some of the things he wrote in the past and how he's done these complete U-turns, and you've got the evidence there online. Uh, but the one thing that, I mean, I know you were encouraged by it when you heard it to begin with, and he has actually actioned this, he's actually pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Do you think that he's likely to pull out of the transatlantic trade investment partnership with Europe as well? Well, that is a good thing he did, pulling out of the TTP, but uh, it doesn't mean it won't be started up again. Why he pulled out one and didn't also deep six the other, it's not clear. Maybe, maybe the transatlantic partnership was deep sixed in Europe. I don't know. But they're the same thing. One with Asia, one with Europe. And uh, what they are, as we, I think we've discussed before, Julian, yeah. these so-called agreements give global corporations immunity to the laws of the countries in which they do business. If their profits are in any way impacted by some safety standards, some environmental standard, or the banning of GMOs, or some labor regulation, or whatever, the global companies can bring a lawsuit against the country and the lawsuit is decided not in the courts of the country or any country is decided by a tribunal of corporations. Yeah, so this is all these partnerships are. It is giving legal immunity to global corporations 
to override any protective law of environment or of people, or work standards, or health, or anything in any country in which they do business. It's extraordinary that any country would agree to something like that. So do you say then that he did it initially when he felt that his hands were not tied? He had that freedom to do it, right. but now he wouldn't do it now, and okay. perhaps he won't do it with the TTIP. Well, what will happen is all the corporations will come and tell him how this hurts them so bad and how can America be first when their hands are tied and he's tied their hands and their hands need to be untied or America can't be first. That, that's the kind of stuff they'll tell him. And there's nobody there to tell him any different. The corporations will come in and give him that spiel. Well, what advisors does he have? They can say, oh, that's a load of None. There's nobody there. You know, I mean, look, uh, the Treasury guys, this is a Goldman Sachs guy. They don't want uh, an end to offshore. Well, that's interesting. I mean, why did he appoint so many people who had a history in the banking industry, and particularly Goldman Sachs? He seems to have set himself up to fail on that one as well. Well, that's easy to understand, Julian. If you come in and you appoint a neophyte who doesn't know the system, it's helpless. Hmm. And this Goldman Sachs guy he appointed had two things going for him. He hadn't worked for Goldman Sachs for 14, 15 years. He'd been doing other things. And he was Trump's finance chairman. He was the first guy that stepped up and was raising money for Trump. So that looked Trump-like. Okay, he's the first guy that supported my candidacy. And he knows the system. He was a former part of it. So he's a good choice. And based on that, he is. And this is Steve Mnuchin you're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. See, it is a good choice if the president is in control and the Treasury Secretary knows it and is doing what the president wants. But if the president is displaced, which I think Trump is, I think he's already displaced because you don't see him where you don't see his presence. He's not present in the foreign policy pronouncements. His program of peace has been turned on its head. No one's getting reprimanded. A lot of people say, oh, see, he was rich. He was part of them from the beginning, blah, blah. But that's not true. If you come from nowhere and you build a billion-dollar real estate entertainment empire, you've been working yourself to death. You haven't got time to be involved in all kinds of secret, hidden conspiracies. Um, and so to sort of pretend that he's some kind of a sleeper they planted a long time ago because they knew they controlled him. And so this is nonsense. And it confuses people from understanding what the serious issue really is. Yes. The real issue is there is an alternative government. It's in place. It doesn't change with the elections. Yes, and I think reading your articles, you made the point, and I think it's a very good point, that the establishment had its candidate in Hillary Clinton. Yeah. So it was very clear that they did not want Trump in there. So when Trump actually gets into office, then they have to go to plan B, which, right. as you're suggesting, is to work upon him in various ways to emasculate him, essentially. And that seems to have worked. Yes, seems to have worked. He, he seems to be emasculated. And the question really is, are we headed to war? with Russia and China. That's the real question. Indeed. And that brings me, of course, to this other aspect that I wanted to talk to you about, which is specifically the Syria 
so-called chemical attack um, in Idlib on uh, the 4th of April, which of course was blamed immediately on President Assad of Syria, just as the attacks in Ghouta were, 2013. Um, and as I said to you in the email, you know, I just find it impossible to believe that Assad would have ordered an attack like that. I mean, just listening to those interviews that he gave last year with Western journalists, you know, whatever his moral character... Um, and I know he has been accused of human rights abuses and things, but whatever the case with that, he is obviously, just from looking at those interviews, he's obviously not insane, he's not stupid, but I think he would necessarily have to have been insane or stupid to have given an order like this. So it makes no sense to me. What What is your assessment of what happened in Idlib? Well, what happened apparently is the United States had made chemical weapons available to ISIS. They had them stored there where the Syrian Air Force attacked, and the attack on ISIS set off one of the weapons. And the U.S. immediately blamed Assad, and the Russians said, well, let's have an investigation, and the United States says no. So there's been no investigation, just an allegation that makes no sense whatsoever. In fact, it is absolutely certain that Assad would not have given that order he would have had to have cleared it with Russia, and they would not have cleared it. So it didn't happen. It's another lie from Washington, just like Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction, blah, blah, blah. Indeed, and I, I like the way that you put that, because you know there's a lot of information and misinformation and talking back and forth about what really happened there, and really, the nub of the matter is, he had no motive. He had every motive not to do it, and that really is all you need to know, isn't it? I think I would put it differently, Julian. The United States had every motive to do it. Okay, indeed, that as well. That makes and sense. talks about... Assad had some human rights. We have accusations. Even if they're true, they are a molehill compared to the mountain of criminal human rights actions of United States, Great Britain, NATO. We have Serbia, Somalia, Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, Syria. Whose human rights violations do you think those are? They're London's, Washington's. The focus isn't Assad. He's just a little gal there they're trying to destroy. He has no way of controlling explanations. They can say anything they want about him. But look at the actions. Who's actually produced millions of refugees who are now overrunning Europe? Who did that? Assad? No. United States. The UK, NATO, Canada, Australia, France. These are the great criminal nations of our time. There's nothing Syria could do that is in any way comparable. Can you conceive, I'm going back to the other perspective on this, because I think both perspectives fit hand in glove. Can you conceive of any way in which Russia would have agreed to such an action by Assad? Does that even make sense? Of course not. They have the war won, mm. you know. What, and, you know, these chemical weapons, they're just a scare thing, a bogey thing. They're not very effective. They're something that they've trained the idiot publics in all the Western countries to be afraid of. They're a justification for wars, for attacks. You know, just remember, Assad's weapons of mass destruction, these were supposed to be chemical weapons. 
Sarin again. I mean, even calling it Sarin is not even proved that it's that, but that is a kind of a key word, isn't it? A fear word that's brought up. I mean, even the guy uh, Postol, Theodore Postol, who's done this response to the White House document that came out, he, although he does work with the notion of Sarin because that's what's in the document, he's by no means convinced that it was. It doesn't matter what it was. In fact, it was probably put there hoping that it would somehow be hit in an assault on ISIS position. If not, it could have been set off by ISIS. Well, that seems to be, or at least it seems to me to be, an implication of what Theodore Apostle says in this report. Let me name the document. It's called A Quick Turnaround Assessment of the White House Intelligence Report Issued on April 11, 2017 about the nerve agent attack in Khan Sheikhoun, Syria. And this is by Theodore A. Postol, Professor Emeritus of Science, Technology and National Security Policy at MIT. So that's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And this is available online. I'll put it in the show notes. So he discusses a photograph of the crater and tube that the White House says is proof that the Syrian government did this chemical attack. Of course, he says there's no way that we can know if this photograph is genuine or not. Uh, He says it might have been staged in some way. And I find it very interesting, actually, that he does say this repeatedly. It may have been staged. But just looking at what has been presented, he says, in his expert opinion, it's not consistent with an air attack. It was most likely launched from the ground. Let me quote. If this is, in fact, the mechanism used to disperse the sarin, this indicates that the sarin tube was placed on the ground by individuals on the ground and not dropped from an aeroplane, end quote. And so I'm thinking, if that's right, who's going to be launching it from the ground? Most likely the kind of people that you're suggesting, who Assad calls the terrorists. That's right. It was set up. In fact, it's not even clear that the people that were killed were killed there by the gas, because we also know that if it was sarin, isn't it sarin gas, the one that hangs around a while, and you had all these alleged aid workers with bare hands handling people who had just been exposed to sarin. Well, those workers would have died too. Indeed, indeed. I I find that actually very perplexing, that uh, you see these images of the white helmets, so-called, handling these bodies they don't have hand protection and yet it's you know it only takes a few minutes to go even to a wikipedia entry to find that this well i just quoted as a nerve gas sarin in its purest form is estimated to be 26 times more deadly than cyanide sarin is highly toxic whether by contact with the skin or breathed in highly volatile um, relative to similar nerve agents Um, person's clothing can release sarin for 30 minutes after it's come in contact with sarin gas so i mean the idea that they were handling these bodies in that way just yeah. establishes, for me anyway, that Sarin was almost certainly not involved and yeah. that that is probably just a propaganda thing that's put out there. That's right. And in fact, those people may have been killed somewhere else and brought there. The fact is we don't know, do we? It's just it's a complete you know, a black hole of information. Well, you know, what always astonishes me is how people take so seriously the American claims. Why should anyone believe anything? The United States government says after uh, the last 20 years, they've lied about everything. And especially after the 2013 attacks that we had, because yeah, so, those so, were debunked by various people, in course, including Theodore Postel himself. So anything the United States government says, you know, is false. That the truth is opposite. And why people still can't put two and two together and say, well, let's see. They've now lied to us 2,000 times, so this time they're telling the truth? You see, look, the reason I'm emphasizing this, Julian, is without the complicity 
of the Western governments and the Western populations, none of this violence would be possible. So Europe is just, and England and Australia and Canada, they are just as responsible as the neocons, as Cheney, as Bush, as Obama, as Clinton, because they enable it, because they accept it, they go along with it, they don't raise questions, they congratulate it. And so what we are facing because of this failure of the entirety of Western civilization is we are facing a thermonuclear conflict with Russia and China. If something like that happens, it's the end of everything. There's not any survivors. And so the real question is, what's wrong with the British, the French, the Germans, the Italians, the Canadians, the Australians, the Belgians, the Greeks? What's wrong with the Hungarians, the Poles? What's wrong with these people? I think it has to come back to what you said earlier, that essentially the narrative is controlled, and it's controlled here in Europe as well, and it's very difficult to break out of that. As soon as you look at an alternative news source, of course you are ridiculed, at least the mainstream will ridicule you, and a lot of people are persuaded by that. Well, you have to ask yourself, is the mainstream media this stupid that they believe these lies they tell, and don't they see what the consequences are? You know, just the other day, Putin made a statement to the media. Look at the consequences of the lies you tell, speaking to the Western media. Look at the consequences. Think about the consequences of the lies you tell. You're forcing a deadly conflict. Why don't they? Can't they? They have to go along with this control. I, I really don't believe that the British foreign minister is so utterly stupid that he believes in any of these stories. It is curious, and I think one of the things that's really missing, certainly not from the alternative media scene, of course, but from the mainstream narrative, is false flag attack. That is hardly ever mentioned, and yet it's a component of understanding that is necessary to really grasp what's going on, um, because it seems to be repeated over and over again. And we've had Vladimir Putin say, at least this is what the translation had it, uh, he was uh, giving a public address, and he was speaking in terms of, well, yes, this looks like it was a false flag, and we're going to get many more coming along in Syria in the weeks and months to come. And I was quite encouraged by the fact that he had said that publicly, because it wasn't repeated widely, as far as I know. Yeah, I think that he knows what's happening, and I think the Chinese know what's happening, and this is why it's dangerous. Because when they look at all this, they say, well, what is the point of this? Well, the United States is preparing the American population and the European population for war against us. This is an explanation for all these lies and demonizations. They're preparing their people for the attack they're going to make on us. So, is Russia and China going to sit there and wait on this? Having convinced them that we intend a preemptive nuclear attack on them? These are the questions of our time, and these questions don't get asked. Could I turn to some of the specifics again of the situation, still taking on board what you've said there as the main point. Um, I want to get your understanding of why Trump ordered that Tomahawk attack on the airbase, the Sherat airbase, because it seems to me, and I think the Russian foreign ministry said this as well, that it was not a target of any significance. 
Um, so why did they do it? Well, to reopen the Syrian conflict and to put American presence there in a brand new way. The United States had not previously directly attacked Syria. And so this was a major escalation, which opens up the prospect for which they are, some of them are clamoring to send 150,000 American troops to Syria. So that's the reason. Now, why did Trump approve it? Well, who knows? The scuttlebutt, and it may just be that, is that his daughter rushed to him with pictures of the dead babies. Said, Daddy, Daddy, you can't let them kill the babies. That's as good as any. But I would imagine that it was the generals saying, okay, look, uh, we can't put up with this. Obama drew the red line and they used the gas and he didn't do anything about it. How weak he was. You're strong, Trump. You're strong. You've got to do something about it. This is the second time. He's used chemical weapons against his own people. Don't you remember Obama? And he didn't do anything despite the red line. And so now we have to do something or we lose face, blah, blah, blah. That was what they tell him. So what's he going to do? Who's telling him no? And they threw Bannon off the National Security Council because so he wasn't there to be able to raise his hand and say, wait a minute, boss, just don't do that. Do you think that Trump might actually have been attracted by the idea of not appearing soft? There's an opportunity not to be soft on Syria and Russia, but not in a serious way because it's not a serious target, but it makes that point in a public relations kind of way. No, it's much more no? important than that, Julian. It now, uh, the United States has uh, engaged in an act of war directly against Syria. It's not operating merely through mercenaries or people that it claims to be opposing. So you're saying that sets a precedent for what's to happen in the next weeks and months? Yeah, it's a precedent now for the troops. Now the clamor is to send a huge American army. And this is a way of pressuring the Russians. You know, Tillerson was recently in Moscow and met with Lavrov and allegedly got to see Putin and told him that Russia had to stop supporting Assad. So, okay, now... We have all this talk here, the high levels and the top regime of sending huge numbers of troops. So what's Russia going to do? Is it going to send huge numbers of troops? Uh, is it going to use its control of the airspace to prevent the Americans from operating there? You see, it's a, it's a major threat. Is Washington bluffing? Maybe. But has Russia got to... Decide, is this a bluff? Is it real? If it's real, what do we do? If we leave, we lose face. We know we are no longer taken seriously. If we stay, we've got conflict. These are all ways of exercising uh, threats. Just like I described the one on China, this is one on mm. Russia. Do you think that's what is in the back of Vladimir Putin's mind when he talks about, he says that he has intelligence, there are going to be more of these false flags. So is he anticipating more of these gas attacks and things like that, which will then be used as a kind of lever to say, Russia, you've got to drop your support for Assad. Is that what he's anticipating? That's right. That's right. So if they can, they can have some more things awful like this, and they can portray Russia as a supporter of barbarism. 
Do you think that Putin will fall for that eventually, if it gets bad enough? He won't, but we don't know what the Russian people will fall for. Yeah. I speak to a lot of these. I'm interviewed constantly by Russians, and, and uh, I tell you, a lot of them are pro-American. They're anti-Russian. So we don't know what's going to come out of this. So it's extremely dangerous. So I was going to ask you, what next? We have a lot of unpredictability in the details of what's unfolding, and yet you've painted for us the general trajectory of the way things are going. So judging by what you have seen happening so far since Trump came to office, what do you expect to be playing out on the world stage, say, in the next two or three months? I fear uh, a major conflict. I can't see what's going to stop it. I have been hopeful, as I think Putin was, perhaps still is, that the European governments would come to their senses and comprehend that they are being driven into a fatal conflict for no reason except American hegemony. So why should Europe be exterminated or risk extermination for the sake of American hegemony? What kind of European leadership produces that? We're hopeful that Le Pen wins in France and pulls out of NATO and that the whole damn evil organization collapses. That would stop it. My prediction is if Le Pen wins and they don't think they can control her, they'll assassinate her. That's the same prediction I made about Trump. If the British had just gone ahead and got out of the EU instead of this mindless process that goes on for years and probably never will happen, if they just got out, then somebody else would say, well, what are we in here for? If the EU weakens, NATO weakens. If NATO weakens, the EU weakens. These are American institutions. They were created by America. We have all the CIA documents. They're public. The CIA supported the politicians who would push it. Unfortunately, we no longer have Trump on that page because he was saying that NATO is obsolete. But now he's saying it's no longer obsolete. Yeah. So, in other words, he isn't really there any longer. Look at all the warlike statements made by the underlings, the vice president, the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, the national security advisor. This is outside of the American tradition. Nobody below the level of the president goes around making those kinds of statements. So he's really not there. You know, he's disappeared. See, today there is an announcement that he is making some changes in the work visas. You see, American university graduates in software engineering or any kind of information technology cannot get jobs because the tech companies, if they haven't already offshored the jobs, they bring in people from abroad on HB1 visas, and they claim there's a shortage, and they have to get these foreigners, and they get these foreigners because they can pay them one-third less. So Trump says today he's going to do something about this, he's going to revamp the program. Who's going to revamp it? The tech companies will write it. They'll put in whatever loopholes they need, and it will go on just as it always has. But he can pretend that he's helping the working class or helping the students with student debt but can't get jobs to pay it. And he can pretend because it's in the news. 
but he doesn't know how to write it. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't abolish the program, which is what you would have to do. You just have to say no more H-1B visas, period. No, he's saying, oh, we're going to fix it. Yeah, right. So, you know, he's not there. He's not there. He doesn't, there's no government there to help him. The government that's there is the same government that would be there if Hillary had won or if Obama was still there or George W. Bush was still there or Bill Clinton was still there. It's the same government. Reagan was the last president. Well, not quite. George Herbert Walker Bush. They were the last presidents who could act independently of the deep state, the CIA, the establishment. And they couldn't always, but they could sometimes. They were the last American presidents who had any independence. So are you saying that he's essentially just carrying on in the role, knowing that he has no real power? It's not that he's changed his mind fundamentally on these things, but he has a position and he just carries on. Yeah, I don't, you know, what what would cause him to change his mind? It all happened suddenly, overnight. Mm. So he just found out that there's no power there. The reason why I put it that way is because I saw a very interesting interview with Michael Hayden, former NSA director and CIA director. And this was a BBC interview several months ago. And uh, he was asked why Trump was skeptical about, you know, the intelligence claims that Russia had hacked the US election process, all that sort of thing. Anyway, he said, um, this is a quote from him. It's our job to get into the head of the chief executive. And it's a lot easier when he makes himself more available, but it doesn't matter. It's our job, the fact guys, he said, to get our view of the world into his head, knowing full well he still gets to make his own decisions, end quote. And I thought that was a really interesting quote there. Now, whether he means literally to get their view of the world into his head, or whether he means just to remove all power so that the president has to do what we say, I, I'm not sure. But that's why I put it that way. You know, I was asking you, do you think they've actually managed to change the way he sees the world, or have they just removed all power from him and he's just carrying on as a cardboard cutout? Yeah, I, I don't think they've bothered to change his mind. They've just taken over you know, we don't really ever know what his mind was. We know we know what he said, and it, yeah. it appealed to people, not to the East Coast and the West Coast, but to the vast bulk of the country. What Trump said appealed: peace and bread. That's what he said. He ran on peace and bread. That's the traditional populist slogan. Like bread. That's the jobs. I'm getting your jobs back. So that's bread. I'm normalizing relations with Russia and getting us out of the Middle East. That's the peace. So that's what people voted. They said, okay, here's the peace and bread candidate. We haven't had one in memory. We're for him. So is one of the lessons from this that there is really no chance in the modern world of getting a president who is going to make any fundamental difference? That is an illusion. Yes, I think that's true. I think that's the case. Now, if you take Trump and compare him to somebody like Marine Le Pen, Trump came out of nowhere. There's no political movement. He hasn't been fighting in the trenches for years. He doesn't know who he can rely on, who he can't rely on. doesn't even know who, he, who his enemies are. He just appears. Now contrast that with Marine Le Pen. This movement goes back to her father, right? It's been going on for decades. She's out there fighting every day. Slings and arrows and false charges and false indictments and She's there. 
day after day after day. She knows the situation. And now polls show, woo, she's really, in many ways, the favourite. But is there any any way imaginable that that kind of grassroots-supported political movement could happen in the US? No, there's not time. It takes, what, 10 years. So it comes back yet again to what you have said a number of times when I have interviewed you. You have said that really it's all down to Europe demanding that there is this severance from the EU and that will break up NATO. And that really is the only hope. There's nothing beyond that. There's nothing beyond that. There has to be a severance of Europe from American control, from Washington control. You know, you've got to have a de Gaulle figure. You know, Charles de Gaulle never went along with any of this subservience to Washington. So we hated his guts. So, yeah, Europe has got to say goodbye. And it's got to be some substantial country. Germany, France, perhaps. It'll never happen in Britain. Britain left the EU because they are an American protector and they can rely on America to take care of the economy. But they're not ever going to say, hey, you guys, you stole the world from us. Now you're forcing us into conflict. You know, I read the other day the Russians having decided they will never again fight a war on their own territory, have equipped their nuclear forces, and their latest missile, uh, it's the latest version of what in my day was known as the SS-18, which over here we called it Satan. The latest one is called Satan 2, and what is said to be sufficient to wipe out the entirety of Great Britain or France or the state of Texas. What? And so you're picking fights in a situation when weapons like that exist, You have to be completely, totally insane. Well, Dr. Roberts, uh, I don't really know what to say at that point other than to come back to your main point, which you have stressed over and over again. That we here, well, you say the UK is perhaps the, the least able to do this, but let's speak to the rest of Europe, need to divorce themselves from the US. Um, I don't see if there's any other hope. The scenario that you present is compelling. Judging by the way things are going, yes, that does seem to be the only way forward. Um, And of course, as you say, we don't have much time because in this very erratic situation, anything could kick off and then all hell would break loose. So I hope that people will listen to what you say and that uh, they will make moves in the direction that you suggest because I don't see a hope beyond that, um, you know, earthly speaking. So thank you very much, Dr. Roberts, for coming on again. Always sobering, but always fascinating to speak to you. Thank you. Okay, Jillian. Sorry to have to tell the truth. Lies are much more comfortable. Okay, well, thank you ever so much for your time. It's good to speak to you. All right, Jillian. Thank you for your interest.